0: If you have your Bibles, take them out to Luke chapter 15. We're going to look again at this very familiar passage, uh, the parable of the prodigal, commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. And if you don't have a Bible with you, then we invite you to look in their bulletin. It's printed there for you uh, conveniently in a, in a good translation, and so you can follow along that way. Uh, now here, the Word of God will start in uh, verse 11, that's where it starts. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. But he answered his father, Look, look you, these many years I have served you, I've slaved for you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have give given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this, your son has come, you have, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. You know, uh, as I told you last week, uh, Tim Keller wrote a book, The Prodigal God, uh, back in 2008. And if you haven't read it, I, I really think you should read it. It is a very small book, very short, but it, it captures the very heart of Christianity. If you want to know what the very center of the center of the universe of Christianity is, this is it? It's in this parable. In fact, this parable does nothing more than retell the story that you find throughout the Bible the story of a creation in paradise, of paradise lost, chaos being introduced by the hard hearted and rebelliousness of our parents, Adam and Eve. That's the story of the scripture. That is the story of this parable. After Keller wrote this book, and Keller wrote the book based on a sermon he had hea- heard Dr. Edmund Clowney preach uh, during their time at seminary. Clowney was a professor there, and I think Keller was an associate professor there at Westminster Seminary. And uh, when Keller heard this, he's a young man, and he heard it, and he writes in the book, in his book, Prodigal God, he said, I felt I had discovered the secret heart of Christianity. So if you want to know what Christianity is all about, this is its heart. This is the throb of Christianity is here in this parable. What Jesus is saying and what was so radical in Keller's ears and what was so radical that Dr. Clowney said and what has become such a... a, a, a revelation to many. Now understand, the old commentators said this too, but they have popularized it in our culture today and the American church needs to hear this. It's possible, this is the thrust of it, it's possible to be lost two ways. You can be lost in open rebellion and sin, disobedience, what the... Uh, a younger son did, shaking his fist and taking off into the far country, but you can equally be lost in church, obeying all the rules, following all the, the dictates that we, uh, not only that are in the Bible, but all that are created for us by our various cultures. You can be lost in disobedience and open rebellion, but you can equally be lost by hidden Superiority, by smug self-righteousness, by a seething underneath the surface, hatred. A resentful and begrudging obedience. Both of these sons, as we talked about last week, both of these sons equally despise the father. Now the younger one went and said, divide your living, divide your your property, and the text says he divided his property between them both. He got no disagreement from the older brother whatsoever when he divided his bios. That's the word uh, for pro- that they use for uh, uh, the word that's translated in the English property or living. But it's the word life. Bios. Where we get biology from. There's two words in Greek for, for life. One is zoe, one is bios. And Luke is very careful. He's using the word bios. He's he's saying to, to, to give the son, the younger and the older, their inheritance, he had to put his very life on the line. And he does it. And what is so scandalous about this passage and what would have been ringing in everyone's ears is that both sons are saying to the Father, in essence, both of them are saying, We wish you were dead. We want your stuff. We don't care about you. We want what you can do for us. And that, folks, is all religion is about. Including, sadly, large swaths of American, particularly American religion. It's all about what God can do for me. Both despise the Father. Both wish Him dead in this weird kind of a way where you say, I want my inheritance now. And I, I quoted from a, a Dr. John Gerstner who was R.C. Sproul's mentor. Dr. Gerstner said it this way. And, and please, listen to these words. Our hatred... He's talking about mankind... Our hatred of God knows no bounds. If it were possible to get our hands on Him, we would kill Him. How do we know? Because when it became possible to get our hands on Him, we did kill Him. That's Christianity. Don't let anybody tell you any different. It's all about a man on a cross. That's what it's about. And if you don't go to that, then don't come to church. Don't bother with Christianity. Find a different religion. We bow our knees. We kiss the ground at the foot of that cross. And not a sterilized Protestant cross, which I love. I love our cross. But not this one. The one with the bloody man hanging on it. That's the cross we kiss. That's the cross. Those are the feet we kiss. And there's part of me that regrets that as Protestants we sterilize our sanctuary. We don't want to see any of that. But folks, that is what Christianity is all about. It's a a God who says, me for you. It's God who says, I give myself to you. There's no other religion on the earth that does that. None. Even come close to that. Every single religion, even much of of Christianity, Protestant, Eastern, Western, Roman, whatever you are, whatever you think about Christianity, much of it, Much of it is about what we must do for God to get Him to like us when all the time we're looking at a cross that says, Me for you. Both despise despise the Father and deep down inside the heart of every man what that spiritual death has done to us in our hearts. Somewhere underneath, if you scratch long enough, you find a heart that is begrudging and secretly resentful against God, until you're born. And when you get a new heart, that changes. But I'm talking about humankind in general. And what the parable is saying is that there's one way to the Father's heart. Listen. One way through the Father's heart, and that is not disobedience and what Tim Keller calls self-discovery. And on the other hand, it is certainly not scrupulous, pietistic obedience For the sake of obedience, in order to get the Father's approval, or to put the Father in debt. The weight of the Father's heart is neither. The weight of the Father's heart, and this is what's so radical about Christianity in general, is the weight of the Father's heart is the Father Himself. We love to throw out these things like God loves everybody unconditionally. No! There's no such thing! There is a condition for why God loves us. You know what it is? It's Him. He is love. He loves His creation. He loves His people. He loves it when He hears these, these beautiful musicians playing and these wonderful vocalists singing. He loves it when you come into this room and you pour your heart out and your griefs and you bring all your doubts and all your fears and all your brokenness and all your tears and all your joy and all your love and love. He loves that. He is a God who is bubbling over with love and joy. And standing on His porch, looking at His world and saying, Come to Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's the heart of Christianity. Why? Why is God the condition? Ask yourself, that's not a hard question, but we will never get to the heart of Christianity until you know why God is the condition. And I'll tell you this, and then we'll get into the rest of the sermon. The reason that He is the condition, the reason it has to be nothing but the love of the Father is because, folks, at the end of the day, that is the only thing that will really transform you, that will change you from the inside. It's the only thing that will work in here. You can change the outside. You can do behavior modification. We do it all the time. New year's resolutions, going on diets, going to the gym, whatever it is. We make all kinds of plans to change. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to gossip less. I'm going to do this and all good, all fine, go do. God bless you. But the only thing that's going to make you new inside, regenerate your heart is a God that says, "I love you. Me for you." Will you trust me? Will you? All I want is your trust. And then, once you trust Me, I'll go with you to the end of the world. We will go together into the pit of hell if we have to go. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm yours. And there is absolutely nothing that will separate Me. Nobody is going to take My sheep from My hands. He makes a declaration throughout the pages of this Bible over and over again that are astonishing. And yet, in the church... Younger brothers and elder brothers, two ways to be lost. You know, when Keller's book came out in uh, 2008, I think, I called a friend of mine, it was a, an acquaintance better, uh, but a pastor who I respect, and everybody's talking about Keller's book, The Prodigal God. You know, we all, we all had already been taught a lot about you know, Keller's thinking on this, but the book came out, and now everybody's reading the book, and everybody's talking about the book. And so we were talking on the phone, and we're saying, you know, what do you think of the book? It's his first book. We're all excited. We're all, oh, yeah, it's great. And, and I told my friend, I said, you know, I used to think I was the prodigal because I have a past. I've told you all in this church many times. Disgraceful. But he saved me. I came back to the Father's house. Then I became a pastor, a professional holy person. And, And now I find myself very often the older brother. Smug, self-righteous, self-justifying. And what is so terrifying, my friend and I are talking about this, what is so terrifying is that for, for me, and I think probably for all of you, if you're honest, we move back and forth between those two every day, don't we? We're schizophrenic. Sometimes we're the younger brother and we're doing things that are not right. We're being rebellious and sinful. Sometimes... We're very astute, very solid, looking around, gazing across the congregation and judging everybody else. And then we catch ourselves and we go, oh no, 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 I can't do that. We go back and forth, back and forth. Let's look at the older son, the older brother's heart, like we did last week. We looked at the, older brother, the younger brother's heart, his terms, and then we looked at the father for a moment. And we're going to do the same today. We're going to look at the older brother's heart, the terms that he makes for the father, and then finally the father's the father's heart. So let's look at look at verses 26 through 28. Notice very carefully where the uh, writer Luke locates the son, the older son. He located the younger son in the faraway country, in the pigsty. He located him geographically on earth. Here, GPS, this spot. Now he's going to locate the older brother. And where does he put him? Look carefully. He is in the field. He is working hard. He is obeying the Father. He's doing everything he's supposed to do. And when work is over, he comes to the house and he hears music and he hears dancing and he sees dancing and he hears music and a party and all this. He asks the servant, what's all this? The servant says, your brother uh, was lost. He's back. Your father killed the fatted calf. He received him safe and sound. And look at the reaction of the older brother. He was angry and he refused to go in. Angry and he refused to go in. Smug, self-righteous self-justifying, judgmental-ness will make you an angry person. I know because I have my issues with my own anger. And so when you see somebody that is just angry, and they're angry at the church, and they're angry at the government, and they're angry at this, and they're angry at that, and they're angry at their dog, and they're angry at their cat, and they're angry at their wife, and they're angry at their job, and they're angry at their. If you just start going and, tr- and tracing, if you just run down the trail, follow them down that trail somewhere at the very bottom of that, they're mad because they've justified themselves somehow. I'm mad at my wife because she didn't do what I told her or she spent too much money or she loves jewelry too much or she likes... Never mind, Mati V, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about somebody else's wife you get mad at our wives. Remember the wife. You know my wife, Marty. never gets mad at me. But but with if you follow just self-righteous anger, you follow it long enough, you'll find somebody is trying to justify, be, trying to be in the right. You'll find it. The younger son, where's he? He defines his How did he define his relationship? Younger son. How did he define his relationship with the father? Give me now, my inheritance. And then he goes off to a far land, and, and his his posture towards the father was one of presumption. In other words, whatever will make me happy, that's gotta be what God wants for me. Whatever it is, if it makes me happy, I should be able to do it because God is all about my happiness. Right? Okay? The younger son is not in the faraway land, he's in the field. He's working! He's in church! He's got his best clothes on on Sunday morning. And all the kids are buttoned up really tight, and they've been warned out in the car. You know, we have a camera out there in the parking lot, by the way. You think I'm joking? This was a bank. And Sal has a whole bank of televisions back in this room, and we record you all in the parking lot. We know what you're doing out there. Putting on those churchy faces and those masks. Okay, let's all get ready to go, kids. One move out of you. And off we go and into the church. Tink, 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 looking so good and so Christian. Oh, look at me. That's the elder brother. That's his attitude. I'm in the field, I'm working. I have slaved. In fact, he uses the word loss." He doesn't use that other word we talked about last week for servant. He says, I've slaved for you. I haven't served you. I've been your slave. And you never give me anything. The younger brother says, give me now. The older brother says, you never give me anything. Resentful, bitter, angry, begrudging. See, this is how we think of God. The elder brothers think of God this way. Uh, God is whatever out there. And I am simply, in this life, some of you may think this, and I want to dissuade you of this in the most strenuous terms. Some of you see your life uh, as Christians. I am here to serve. I am here to work for God. And so it creeps into our language and we say things like that. I just want God to use me any way He chooses. I want God to use me. Like you would use a pair of pliers. (laughs) Or use a screwdriver. Or use a jack to jack up your car. Like utilitarian. God has a use for me. And therefore, that's I, and we start thinking that way. It creeps in and creeps in. And we start thinking, you know, how is God going to use me? Or, and, and we love this one, in our circles, in these Presbyterian Reformed circles, we love this one. God is our teacher, and you're in a classroom. So everything that comes into your life is you've got to learn something from it. You know, I don't, a lot of you don't know Paulette, our, our piano pianist. Hi. You don't mind me talking about Alexa. Amen. Nine years ago, we lost Paulette's uh, middle daughter, Alexa, in a tragic car accident. Many of you don't know that. And uh, it happened on a Saturday. On Sunday, I couldn't get anybody to preach for me, so I preached about a five-minute sermon on Sunday morning, and it was basically warning the then present Christ the King church, when Paulette and Max come back to El Paso, here are the things you are not, you are forbidden to say these things to them. And one of them, you'll remember, one of them I said, don't you dare, Christ the King people, none of you were here, I said, don't you dare, tell Paulette it's going to be alright. What, what do you think God is teaching you? Right? You remember that? I mean, we wept over that. (sighs) Many of us, something comes in your life and immediately, what is God teaching me? You know, let me just tell you something right now, folks. You are not in a classroom. You are not in the field working. Yes, I know, the fields are full, laborers, we need all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is not what Jesus is teaching here. Listen carefully. You are not in the classroom. He knows, you're going to get, he knows you're going to learn lessons. He knows that life is full of cruddy, awful lessons. And that you're going to work like a dog and the sweat of your brow the rest of your life. And that it's not going to bring you a whole lot of joy. And someday they're going to put you in a ground and with none of your stuff. You think God doesn't know that? Do you think you're not going to go through life in pain and learning lessons? Do you think He wants to add more work to you? Do you think He wants to add more lessons to you? And if you think you're just working, 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 a little worker be a drone, and when you die, he just tosses you to the side and gets another tool. Or you're just a student in his great big classroom and he's just trying to teach you. You can't be in the field. You cannot. The heart of Christianity is not the field. The heart of Christianity is not the classroom. The heart of Christianity is heartbeat, is throb. The center of the center of the universe of Christianity is in the Father's house. In the Father's embrace, in the Father's love, in the Father's kiss, in the Father's welcome, in the Father's delight. That's it. That's it, plus nothing. There's anything else. How much better could it be? Yes, you're gonna learn. Yes, you're gonna work. But if you don't find your, the center of your life in the father's arms, in the father's house, Christianity, you're either gonna to want to get away from him, which a lot of Christians do, they run from that's why our kids are fleeing church. They flee church because they think God just wants to use them or that maybe they should use God to get whatever they want. Not We don't teach that. Or that everything that comes in their life just God's trying to teach them something. You've got to give them a lesson. Not it. What he reminds the elder brother is this listen carefully and look at the look at what he says it is the prerogative of God's grace what he says to the son son you're always with me you're always with me but listen to what the son says these are his terms remember now that's the son's heart look at his terms look at verse 29 through 30 he, he scolds his father, and make no mistake, Luke is brutal. When Luke writes this, he writes it in a very brutal fashion. It would have shocked anybody reading it. Now, English translations, we tend to sterilize things in English translations. I'm not sure why. I don't know if it's Puritan, Victorianism, or whatever. But we tend to want to sterilize the Scripture. But go back and read the original languages, and you see stuff. Wow, they are really out there with language. And you hear the Son. Last week we heard the younger son's inner voice. This week you hear the older son, but he's not inner nothing. He is out there in front of everybody in the ancient Near East and the Middle East with a father. You don't do that. I mean, you die for that. Capital punishment for that, for disrespecting dad. Let's get his voice. Verse 29. Look. And in Greek it says, look you. He doesn't even address him with the respect that the younger son did. He doesn't even address him as father. He says, Look, you. Now it's coming, the mask is coming off, and now you're seeing the inside. Look, you. I silently wished you dead when we divided your property before, your bios before, but I'm openly wishing you dead now. In front of everybody, this is the, the tenor of his voice. His terms—that's his voice. His terms. You owe me these many year, years I've served you. To use that other word, you remember from last week, he uses the word "doulos," the slave. Yeah, I've slaved for you. And you never, and he, and he says this in Greek, it says, You never, not ever, not once, have I disobeyed your command. You think he might be saying a little too much there? But he's not through scolding his father. You never, not once, not even ever, have I disobeyed you. And yet, you never, not once, not ever, Gave me even a young goat to celebrate with my son. And then you can, see, you can almost hear the, the spit shooting out of his mouth, the disdain he has for his father. This son of yours! He doesn't even claim him as his brother. He says, this son of yours. His hatred for his father and his brother knows no bounds. Oh, just a little aside. Do you know where self-righteousness and self-justification takes you on the spectrum? Do you know where it goes? You start with this. Judging other people. Do you know what the other end of the spectrum is way out here? Genocide. We're going to kill those Jews. We're going to kill those Armenian Christians. We're going to kill those uh, uh the, the Muslims I've forgotten from, from uh, uh, Burma, uh, from Myanmar. We're going to kill. We're going to kill because we have a right to kill. The self-justification, the smug self-righteousness, its end result is murder. And on a grand scale, whether it's the Nazis or whoever, pick your bad guy. That's where it goes. This son of yours, he devoured your property with prostitutes, and you've killed the fattened calf for him. You can hear this son's disdain. And don't forget, both of them are disrespectful to the Father and despise the Father. What hope do we have? You know, if you were there in the audience, you would have been, you would have been absolutely captured, whether you were a scribe or Pharisee, or whether you were one of the crowd, no matter where you were on that spectrum of younger brother, elder brother, by this time, I can assure you, everyone was glued to Jesus' words. It was one of the most dramatic things that you will ever read in Scripture. And He was a master storyteller. He drew them in to this story, and He had them right where He wanted them. And he says to them, not the far country, not the field close to home, no, no, no terms, but the Father's heart. Look at verse 20. This is the last part. We'll do this quickly. Next week I'm going to talk the whole time about the Father. And if I beg you, come back next week. And I beg you, bring your friends that maybe have been burned in church and hurt in church or think Christianity is a bunch of self-righteousness. Bring them back. Come next week so you can hear. Spending the whole time... we're going to spend all sermon next week talking about the Father. Verse 28, the end of the verse. He comes out. The Father... Remember He ran and embraced the younger son? Well, now he does it again. He goes outside. The younger refused to come in and the father goes out. Let me tell you, this was absolutely not done in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, and even in there, over there today, the, 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 these respected patriarchs, these these men sit and they wait. You come to them. And that's in much of the world. You could go to almost any... Country in the world. And that, patriarchy and respect for elders, even matriarchy, even for the women. There's a certain respect. We lost it in the West, sadly, but nevertheless, the Father comes out. That would have just... Everybody would have been going, what? He comes out. And He, in your translation, I think the ESV says, entreated. But look it up in a Greek lexicon. It's the strongest word He could have used. He begged Him. Can you imagine? The father comes out and he begs him, please, please come in. Please. Even after receiving that scolding, please come in. And in verse 31, son, he addresses him with tender endearment. Son, son, You're always with me. In other words, He affirms His obedience. Don't think for a minute that Jesus ever, ever criticized anyone for being obedient. He affirms this younger son's obedience. Son, you're always with me. But Jesus knew something about obedience. And so in Matthew 23, when you get home today, uh, go home and li- read Matthew 23. If you, could, if you could listen to Alexander Scorby, like I did uh, on cassette tape, no less, no exaggeration, no less than 200 times, I listened just to Matthew 23, read King James English by Alexander Scorby. If you don't know who he is, well, I'm sorry for you. He was a Shakespearean actor, many of you know. Jesus to the crowd of his disciples. Listen, Jesus affirms obedience. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Jesus said this The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, do whatever they observe, and do whatever they tell you. But not the works they do, for they preach and do not practice. They bind heavy burdens, grievous to be borne, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they won't move that burden with one of their little fingers. And off he goes. Read the rest of the chapter. It will, it will send chills up your back. No, the Father's heart... Grace. Obedience, yes, good. Obey. You should obey. You must obey, by the way. But grace. You don't set grace over against obedience. Grace is its own thing. He never implies for one second, the Father, that the elder brother had earned his love. Look at the second part of the sentence. It's just brilliant. Jesus, absolute. He is a crazy genius. That Jesus and His parables, son, you're always with me. But grace, all that I have is yours, huh? All that I have is yours. Grace, grace, all that I have is yours. You all know the story. And I'm sorry, I'm taking a little bit too long, but listen, you all. Maybe some of you know the story of John Bradford in Tyburn Prison. John, Prada, uh, uh, John, Tyburn was, uh, or John Bradford was in, in Tyburn prison because he was a Protestant. And they were hanging the Protestants on the gallows. And Bradford's up in his window. Little tiny window. And every day they would call the names of the Protestants they're going to hang because of their Protestantism. Bradford's watching. His name didn't get... You know, they'd call out the names of the prisoners to come out to be hanged. Here's what he said. Y'all will, y'all will recognize it when I say John Bradford would turn to the prisoners in his cell waiting to hear their name called. When his name didn't come up, and they would take the other prisoners and they would be going marching to the gallows, he would say this There goes John Bradford. But for the grace of God, if it had not been for the grace of God, there goes John Bradford. But self-righteousness, my God, it will blind us, folks. Keller, in his book, again, he asks this question, and I'm asking you now. Do we love God for what He gives us, what He does for us, what He can do for us? Or do we love Him simply for Himself? And that's a question every one of us has got to ask. Every day when you wake up in the morning, saying, do I really love Him for Him? Or do I love Him for what He's going to do for me? What I can get out of Him. Jesus is now, at that point in this dramatic presentation of this parable, He's got everybody. He's got the Pharisee, the scribe, He's got, he's got the younger brother, He's got everybody, He's got the crowd in His hand. And out of His own mouth, Jesus almost begs, you could almost hear Him. Not, you know, doesn't say that in the text, I don't want to say more than this, but it's almost as if Jesus is now left the parable, and he's looking at everybody in the audience, every scribe, every Pharisee, and he says, he's begging. He's saying directly to them now, isn't it fitting? Isn't it right? That we should celebrate this resurrection? You see, it was not a return. I told you last week, it was not a return, folks. Uh, they weren't celebrating the return of this young man from the far country, they were celebrating His resurrection. His new life. The robe, the ring, the shoes. They were celebrating His new life. And and the Father says it. Isn't it fitting we celebrate this Your brother? He was dead, but He's alive now. He was lost, but He's found now. Remember what I told you prodigal means? This is why Tim Keller is a genius. How he... I mean, the title of the book is worth buying the book. The Prodigal God. What does prodigal mean? To spend with reckless... Abandon. It's taking the hundred dollar bills and lighting your cigars with them and throwing everything, you know, throwing it out there and buying bottles of champagne that's a hundred dollars a bottle and just shooting it off into the air. And it's throwing your money and throwing your money, reckless, reckless abandon. With no care for tomorrow, no thought of anything. To the last cent. Till it's all gone, till it's all spent, there's nothing left over here. The first sermon, I'll close with this. First sermon I heard Dr. Sproul, the late Dr. Sproul, preach. I was enthralled with Dr. R.C. Sproul, like many of you, and I'm listening to him preach, and he said this, if Jesus' death was all we needed to get rid of our sins, Then God would have sent him down on a parachute. And the Romans and the religious people would have gathered him up and just taken him to the cross and nailed him up there, and that would have been the end of that. But that's not how you get saved. You get saved the old fashioned way by works. You get saved the old-fashioned way by works. And by this time, every Protestant in the room was about ready to die of apoplexy. Including me. Because oh, we're all saved by grace and by faith, right? And R.C. says, no. We're saved the old-fashioned way by works. But they're not your works. They're His. The older brother, the elder brother said, I slave for you. I never disobey you. You never give me anything. And Jesus, don't you love Him? I mean, really. Jesus says this. To your never, I say this. I always do what pleases my Father. I always do what pleases Him. Now, hear Jesus' voice. Hear Him speak. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The field working won't make you perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But no. In these sacrifices, there's a reminder every day of sin. For it is impossible, listen, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, now listen, if you don't hear anything else, listen to this. When Christ came into the world, He said, these are His words. This was on the lips of your Savior to the cosmos, to every demon of hell, to Satan, to every world power, to every scribe, to every Pharisee, to every younger brother, to every older brother, to every human being that ever lived, Jesus says this, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, in burnt offerings and sacrifices and all sin offerings, you, O God, have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Jesus, I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. We're saved the old fashioned way, folks, by works but they're not ours they're Jesus and from the time he stepped the time he took up his place in that cradle until he hung on that cross and in that grave and unto the resurrection on the mount of olives from that for every part of his life was him obeying the father for you perfect the son thinks he does the older brother think we think we're obeying god so well but Jesus obeys him truly for us as us, so that we can stand in this same book of Hebrews, boldly come before the throne of grace and bring our hearts to that heart of the Father. Not in the far country, not in the field, not in the classroom. In His arms. He wants you in His arms. Will you trust Him? Will you? I pray you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much. Wow, how could you ever have loved people like us? Yet you do. I I don't know. You love the elder brother. You love the younger one. you You love people. With all our mess, please help us. Let us recognize that younger brother, that elder brother in us, in each one of us. And find our salvation in the Father's house at His table, feasting as we will do in a moment. Thank you. Help us, we pray. Amen.